0: Hi, this episode of Command Space was recorded just before we announced our acquisition by 5x5. So if you want to learn more about that, listen to last week's episode of Command Space or go to 70decibels.com forward slash blog. Thanks. Hello and welcome to episode thirty-four of Command Space. I am your host, Mike Hurley, and it is my pleasure to be joined today by Mr. John Syracusa. Hi,
1: John. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm getting over a cold, but other than that, I'm good.
0: That's not a problem. Not a problem at all. Of course, I hope that you are. Uh, I hope that you're feeling better very soon.
1: Yeah, me too. And uh,
0: I hope that it won't hinder you for too, too badly to talk to me today.
1: No, if I, if I go into a fever state and start babbling, just yell very loudly and I'll snap out of it.
0: Okay. Is there, do you have any trigger words or just yelling in general?
1: Just loud volume will do it.
0: Maybe if I say something like OSX, do you think that might pull you back?
1: I was thinking maybe the, uh, the alternate pronunciation of words in the supposed shared language between us would do it, but maybe not.
0: <laughs> I'll think of something.
1: Oh, uh, you already went through a couple of them. <laughs> the American fascination with British accents. Try to keep it under wraps, but
0: there oh i trust me i've been doing this for long enough now to know that that you people love my accent
1: yep so
0: john what do you like to be known for
1: oh i don't know uh i don't i i sometimes i feel like i'm known by different things to different people in my life and i'm okay with that you know i mean the most extreme examples like your kids know you as dad right and they don't know anything else about you so that's an identity that you get when you have kids that you didn't have at all uh, and it's like, well, do you want to be known as dad? Well, you know, it's it's one aspect of your personality, one aspect of your life. Some people know me as the guy who writes really long reviews of Mac OS i I'm okay with them knowing me for that the same way I'm okay with my kids knowing me as dad. My coworkers know me as a, a programmer, and I'm okay with them knowing me as that. So I don't know if I could pick, like, how do you want people to know you as a podcaster, or a writer or any of these things, any of these nouns that people put in their Twitter bios, you know, those, that formula for the Twitter bio where you go, like, husband father programmer <laughs> writer you know that thing
0: lover of life
1: exactly you know and uh, i always like to look at those and see if they're they're trying to rank them in priority order and then see who's getting slighted in them but anyway uh, all those things are good for me. I, I have no preference for how people know me uh i guess i'd want to be known for doing good things in whatever domain i choose to apply myself
0: man of the people i wouldn't go that far <laughs> man of the internet Yeah, there you go. We'll go for that. We'll go for man of the internet. So you are, I guess, I mean, for me personally, I know you as a a writer and a podcaster, and probably a podcaster more than anything else. I mean, you were the host of the Hypercritical podcast on 5 by 5 and you are a frequent, very frequent guest or panel member of The Incomparable. And you now have your new show, Neutral, as well, that you do with Marco and Casey.
1: Yeah, I do a lot of podcasts these days. I think I mentioned on another podcast recently that it's weird that, uh, you know, all those years I spent writing things for Ars Technica, and I still write for them, right? And all that time I spent online and, you know, all the work I put in, you know, in my job or whatever, like, the thing that that I'm most recognized for now is my podcast, and, you know— I guess my podcast was reasonably popular, but I can tell you that many, many more people have read what I've written than have heard what I've said on a podcast. But uh, there's something about podcasting where uh, people feel like they have a more personal connection with you. Like, maybe people can read stuff that you write and never look at the byline and not know that's you. But if they they hear your voice uh, and they hear it over and over again, you just become a part of their life. So uh, it, it could be that uh, more people would recognize, well, I guess they would recognize my voice uh, and they would recognize me as a podcaster. But, you know, uh, I would consider myself, if I had to rank them in, uh, in, in order, a podcaster would come towards the end. It's a relatively recent development. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think I've done the other things a lot more and probably a lot better. I hope a lot better.
0: I've I've been I think about this a lot. Like you know, what, what is it about podcasting and writing, and, and and what makes a difference for the way that people perceive you? And the only theory that I've been able to to come up with is that if you read a website, a website like ours, um, you don't always read who the the person who who the author of the piece is, and you will just read it in whatever voice you attribute to that website or just your own voice. But when you hear somebody podcasting, obviously you. You can hear that their distinct voice is different. So you start to build an uh, image of that person in your head. And I think that's why, personally, I think that's why people relate to um, podcasting more than writing. Even though, as you say, more people uh, re- have read what you have written and have listened to what you've said, but they now have a person in their brain that they attribute this voice to.
1: Yeah. And professional writing, like, uh, you tend to file off a lot of the edges. You know, you just. The, the way you write—not that we write that formally—but when you when you write something, you're chopping off all of the extraneous stuff, omitting needless words and stuff like that. I'm not I'm not saying that you can't have a style when you write, but there's definitely more similarity there than there is when we speak, you know, extemporaneously on a podcast, where you get to hear all of my verbal ticks and my intonations and uh, the, the tone of my voice. And I guess if you were like a a true professional podcaster, which I am definitely not. Some of those edges get filed off too, but if you're just kind of an amateur podcaster, uh, that stuff comes out, and that that provides a hook for people. They recognize me, my voice, my verbal ticks, my intonations, the things that, that get me worked up. Whereas when I write, I think a lot of that is it's in the meaning of the words, but it's not all those manner, you know, sort of not mannerisms, but sort of all those verbal ticks are not in the writing. Like those are those are taken out.
0: This is probably like asking you to choose between your children, but do you do you have a preference for writing or podcasting?
1: Uh, no, like uh, they're two very different things. Uh, you know, it, if I do too much of – at this point, if I do too much of one, I start to feel the need to do the other. Like I didn't – I hadn't podcasted at all until I did Hypercritical and Incomparable uh, starting at similar times. Uh, and I got into that just because I was uh, listening to podcasts. I was a fan of podcasts, and I and you know I listened to enough of them to say I could probably do that. Like I could talk into a microphone for a little while, and it was an outlet that wasn't provided for me by writing, you know. I, and so I got stuff out of me that I couldn't get out by writing. And the opposite is also true. Sometimes I, you know, when I was heavily into podcasting, doing a weekly show, and plus the incomparable, and plus being on other shows, sometimes I felt like what I was producing was an hour of babbling. And if, if, I had, if only I had a little bit more time, I could distill that down to a, a page or two of text that really got at what I was saying. And I miss that, right? And so it, it, it's, it's a balance between those two things. I, I think of podcasting more as kind of the first draft of my thoughts on a topic. If I really knew what the heck I was talking about, I, w- I would be able to write it. But sometimes I got to talk it out before I figure out what it is I want to say. And in the absence of a podcast, it's just, you know, me talking to friends and uh, hashing it out of my own mind, but if I can do the same stuff into a microphone and get feedback uh, from listeners that way, that's that's just as good. So no, I definitely couldn't pick between them. They feel very different to me.
0: So um, you your run of the hypercritical podcast ended um, was it in December or January? Uh, december December, and that was a hundred episodes and you 've yes. been recording it for obviously a couple of years at that point um, you now um as i say you you 're still working on the incomparable and you have Neutral, which is your car show, which you are one of a uh, one of one of three hosts on that show and one of the first questions that we 've got um, that's submitted by one of the listeners at the show and this is from at c Franco two um, and they wonder if your workflow has changed from doing a highly structured podcast that you were like primarily in control of the topics of, of hypercritical, to to maybe ones that are less structured. Like, it, do do you do a lot? Do you do any less prep work now than what you did previously?
1: As I think I think Marco and Casey have said on their show, their secret plan with Neutral is to prevent me from doing any preparation so I don't burn out. Because after Hypercritical, I didn't want to do a regular show again. And Marco wanted to do this show about cars, and I wasn't opposed to it. But I'm like, you know, Come, let's have a break between, you know, we both had just ended our podcast. that had been going for a long time. I didn't want to get into, like, a weekly schedule. And so uh, Neutral was pitched as like, it's just going to be like a miniseries that will go on forever. Uh, and they generally don't want me to do lots of preparation, and to that end, they don't tell me what the topics are going to be beforehand. Uh, and so, I, I basically also try to get with that program as well. And I I read all of the listener feedback, but I try not to prepare anything <laughs> ahead of time, just to try to keep it to try to keep it. You know, the, the amount of uh, mental weight that it applies to me uh, down low. Like, and the incomparable is similar in that sometimes the incomparable I don't have to do any preparation because it's just you know. Uh, let's talk about TV shows. I watch TV shows, that's all I need to do. Sometimes I do do a little bit of preparation for Incomparable, but I'm not on the Incomparable every week. So for neutral, every once in a while I'll have a couple of notes of things I might want to talk about, but more frequently I'm going in and I have no idea what we're going to talk about that week. So I've got nothing in front of me.
0: Because you would prepare for, for many, many hours for one episode of Hypercritical, is that correct?
1: Yeah, like I, I, would, I would write an outline, and the outline could this is what you could do with the outline like i would think of a topic that i want to talk about and i would write the outline and do the research and put the notes in and look stuff up and, and fact check things and go around and around for a long long time and then given that outline i could take that outline and i can do a podcast or i could take that outline and i could turn it into like something written uh but for hypercritical i took all that same stuff and turned it into a podcast but it was the same kind of rigor i replied. like if you're writing something you're not going to just write something down and go i think that's right no you're gonna go and look it up online like when did this start? What year did this start? And what year did it end? Or how much did this thing weigh? Or, uh, when did this person get fired? Or did they get fired? Or were they just laid out? Like you'll, you'll look it up. You'll do the research, right? And so that's how I treated hypercriticals. Anytime I want to talk about a topic, I wanted to have all the facts there organized and my thoughts about them with the same rigor that I would do if I was going to write it. Because if you just blog post about something and write it up there as, as you would just speak off the top of your head, uh you know, you get called on it to say, look, I read this, this blog post you made and you're wrong about all these facts. Uh, whereas in Neutral, we have no compunction with being wrong because the whole idea is it's supposed to be a casual car podcast, not by car people, just by regular people who just happen to be interested in cars. So uh, as I think I tweeted after the first Neutral show, it uh, broke the record for the uh, largest number of incorrect statements about cars per minute.
0: <laughs> you should have some sort of, like, that. that should become a statistic, like mph or php you know you should have your statistic for that
1: yeah it, well i mean like i think it's, for some people that's a turn off but like that's we're trying to present the show is that from the start that we are it's a casual podcast about cars uh, so it's it's probably infuriating to people who know a lot about cars the same way that uh a technical podcast would be infuriating to tech nerds if it's just people kind of talking about and you're like screaming into the the uh you know the virtual headset saying you guys don't know anything. Let me tell you about you know, but that's that's what we're doing with the I think, uh, And some people like it, some people don't.
0: I mean, I know that I like it because I am a casual car person. I'm more casual than you than you guys. So it's it's entertainment listening to me. And I think if I, you know, because you're sort of the way that you guys talk about cars is like how the guys on Top Gear talk about cars. And Top Gear in its previous incarnation was like. The magazine show like before you know we've got the free guys now and it used to be many many years ago on bb on, on bbc television um it was a just review 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 that was all it was and there was a much larger uh, amount of hosts but now it's like an entertainment show um and it's fun and, and i guess that's what neutral i guess is the car podcast version of that because i know that you guys were saying that you didn't want to like because all the, the the car podcasts that exist, or that seem to exist, focus very heavily on the facts and the stats. Where you guys just talk more about cars and driving and, and that sort of stuff, It makes it interesting.
1: Yeah, I actually uh, I brought this up that I may want to try to talk about this on the neutral podcast eventually, maybe towards the end of it. Uh, but like going into the car podcast, that's the first thing I said, of course, uh, to Marco was that we can't have a, parca- a car podcast. We don't know anything about cars, like. We've, how many cars collectively have we owned among the three of us? Not enough, like, we can talk about the cars that we've owned, but we haven't test-driven lots of cars, and none of us are mechanics, and we just don't have the depth of knowledge that we have in other fields, so how can we have a podcast about it? And Marco's idea was, well, it doesn't have to be that kind of podcast. It can be a casual park, uh, car podcast. Uh, and so that's that's what I think made it, made it possible at all. We would all have to do a lot more uh, studying up and spend the next – two decades test driving cars to have an informed opinion about all the things that we talk about, but that's not, that's not what happens. You know, people just sort of, uh, can be interested in cars and, uh, discuss them in a casual manner. And the other, the other thing is that I, I get a little bit defensive about this when people, say, you guys know nothing about cars. Like, we don't know nothing about cars. Like I've been reading car magazines since I was a kid, and I, I used to read them obsessively. I used to read all of them. In fact, and when I was in college, I read like seven car magazines a month. You can't do that for your whole life and, and know nothing about cars. I think we know more than the vast majority of the population. We just don't know as much as someone who's actually a mechanic or someone who actually reviews cars for a living. So it's a continuum. You know, you get to a certain level of uh, of technical sophistication, and nerdery, and you're actually just shrinking your audience. Like hypercritical is probably too nerdy for most people most of the time and even when i was doing hypercritical i knew that if like there's one if there's someone who has implemented a file system listening to my episode where i talk about file systems they're going to be rolling their eyes and going this guy knows nothing about file systems so there's always somebody who knows more than you but what can you do
0: i think that neutral and hypercritical for me are similar in the way that there were there were quite literally whole episodes or multiple episodes of hypercritical where i did not understand what you were talking about but I found it entertaining. Like I don't understand file systems. It's not something that I've really spent much time investigating over my life. But you are able to present them in such a way that I was able to get entertainment out of it. So I don't know what it is that you that makes you be able to do that, John, but you have a skill for it.
1: Well it's kind of the uh laughing with you versus laughing at you thing and uh i'm definitely uh my strong suit is the laughing at me thing so even if you don't know what i'm talking about i seem to be this funny little man who's worked up about something uh and that can be entertaining i guess
0: so i i couldn't i couldn't allow myself to talk about podcasting with you and not mention follow-up the idea of Mm follow-up and in in the last episode of, of hypercritical you you spoke about it a little bit and the fact that um you feel that you'd created this idea. And I, I guess it's kind of your legacy in a way that the mark you have left on podcasting um, in no matter whatever form you decide to take going forward is the idea of follow-up. And it was sort of something that I think – well, it's definitely the, 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 the coinage was something that you came up with. And the idea of addressing some concerns, whether they be um, more to say on a topic or some – things that need to be corrected and to put them at the start of the show and that idea of follow-up is something that has permeated across podcasts now. Um, do you consider it now to be be your legacy? Do you still hear it on other shows and you're like, yeah, that that's my thing?
1: How far, I don't know how, how sure how far it's gone because of course it started with with me because it was a thing I wanted to do and I'm I'm you know other podcasts have had a feedback segments I mean like I should be writing one of the uh, early podcasts that I listened to that inspired me had had entire shows that were just feedback shows but they were, she would just address feedback uh, follow up just felt natural to me and my chosen phrase of follow up or you know so I think it was in the second show I abbreviated it as FU as a joke that was uh, spread throughout the five by five network starts out as you know. Another host on another show on five by five who happens to be a friend of mine saying they're gonna do follow- up as a joke kind of you know like haha I'm doing that thing that the nerdy guy John does or they would want to use the same fu type joke uh, and at a certain point it stops being uh, you know ironic or mocking and starts just being a common coinage but I didn't see it spread very far outside of five by five like I've never I've never heard it on a podcast that doesn't involve people that I know uh, and and if it has spread that far, I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's an original idea. I think it's just the phrasing that, that's different, I, you know, and maybe the way I did it. Like, people don't – the minutiae that I went into in follow-up and the the particular pieces of feedback that I chose to address were probably not the ones that other people would choose to address. But uh, certainly within the circle of 5x5 and podcasts that are, uh, that are done by people who I know or I'm friends with uh, – that that could be my lasting impact, as brief as it may be.
0: I feel like it's going to carry on. I mean, it's it's a term that that um, we use on on our network, and I've heard it in other shows that I listen to as well. I think it's basically it's it's people that listen to five by five shows, and it's yeah. Now just I mean, five x five has a big audience, a, a very big audience. Yes, um, Hypercritical.co dot is now uh, probably your it's your it's your website, right? This is your blog. That's right. Has this become your outlet for these types of topics now that Hypercritical The show is over?
1: I kind of felt like I missed out on blogging, right? Because I I started writing for Ars Technica in 1999. uh, And from that point on, uh, the things I wanted to write about and the things that Ars Technica wanted to publish had a pretty big overlap. I I did a little bit of writing for a couple other outlets, some of which don't even exist anymore. I wrote for Macworld a little bit, uh, but in all those endeavors, it was like, it's not going up on my site, it's going up on someone else's site, like more of a, you know, a freelance writer for other people's publications, and dur- that, during that whole time, from like 1999 till now, that like blogging rose and fell, right, it was the, the rise of blogging and Weblogs, Inc., and everyone's getting, you know, having their own blogs and getting famous and becoming, you know, standalone bloggers, and that's their job, and then Blogging aggregation sites being bought for all this money, but I didn't really have a blog at that point. I kind of had a blog at Ars Technica, but it was still like you know a corner of the site, and they got rid of that section of the site and, re- and redesigned things. Like the articles are still there, but uh, I don't know. I just I just never felt like I had my own website or my own blog. So if, after doing Hypercritical for two years, I definitely felt like the writing part of my life, the the sort of more casual writing part of my life, was being neglected. So I figured. Uh, when, the pod, when I ended hypercritical, now I'll finally have more time for writing. I didn't know if it would actually mean that I would write, because it could have very well been that the reason I wasn't writing my own stuff is because I didn't want to, and just, just because I got rid of the podcast wouldn't mean I would write more things. But, uh, I mean, I've been making an effort. I've been making an effort to, to write more. I mean, my, my problem has always been that I will choose not to write something because I think it's obvious, and it's not interesting to me if it's obvious. Like the thing, the thing I just posted about uh, WebKit and uh, you know WebKit monoculture type thing. I when Opera switched over to uh, to WebKit like I don't know a couple weeks ago or sometime last month or something. I saw that story and I'm like, oh, but like WebKit's more like Linux, and I figured there'll be 800 articles to that effect, and the topic is not interesting to me anymore. Uh, But then as several weeks passed, and it's like, all right, I really need to write something for my blog now. What should I write about? And I said I looked at my little ideas file. And there was a little line in the ideas file that said, uh, "What did it say? Like WebKit Linux model culture. I think that was the extent of the bullet point for that item. And I said, "You know what? I haven't read any articles that have said that, so maybe it's not as obvious as I think it is." And I'm like, "Well, this like this is the game I play with myself in my head." You know, just write something. Like just because you think it's obvious or dumb, who cares? No one's reading your blog anyway. Just just write something. It's better to just write something and get it out there. Like I need to, I need to get over the idea that everything I write has to be clever, insightful, or original, or like groundbreaking, just, just write something. Because people will be more interested in your website if you put something up there. Even if they're not all winners, even if they're not all long, just put something down. And so I'm like, fine, I'll go ahead and do that. Uh, and that article, of all the things that I'd written in the past month, uh, got widely passed around and was much more popular than the other articles that I saw <laughs> were so much more clever and insightful. So I'm obviously a very poor judge of what will be popular on my own blog, which further motivates me to just, just write something down.
0: That is always the way that the things that you feel maybe aren't the biggest hits are always the ones that seem to to land most with people. It's very strange the way that that, that works.
1: That, that disappoints me though because that what that means is a I am doing a bad job of communicating the ones that I think have some deep insight in them. Like the deep insight may be there, but I am not getting it out of my head and into other people's heads. Like I am failing as a communicator there, right? And b it's like the the other more cynical part is like okay, well popularity relies on you. Giving people an idea that they already agree with or that is obvious, and I think challenging things are less likely to find an audience, but that's the only when I'm feeling uh, pessimistic about humanity. But either way, like you know I, it, it motivates me to work hard and it motivates me to just put stuff out there.
0: I think there's something to be said though um, for people not really minding too much what what it is you're writing about, but they're coming for the insight that only you can have you know so yeah. so worrying that oh you know i'm going to see loads and loads of pieces about this but people want to read what what transfer has to say
1: yeah, i don't know i mean like I, i'm i'm allergic to, it sounds like him. <laughs> excuse me yeah I'm sorry <laughs> i'm i'm a little bit allergic to the the sort of cult of personality thing where mm-hmm. people aren't interested in what you're saying they're only interested in it because of your like the, the obvious example is like the, the concept of celebrity uh, where when you reach a certain level of fame, you become a celebrity, and suddenly people are really interested in uh, what brand of uh, power bars you pack in your lunch. Like, they, they are dying to know what toothbrush you use, right? And that is not interesting. The only reason anyone cares, you know, uh, about any of those things is because you are a celebrity and they just want to know everything about you. And that's, that's, that's like the doomsday scenario where totally boring, non-interesting things become fascinating because you are super-duper famous. Now, obviously, um, no one's ever going to become that famous writing about Mac OS X or whatever, but it's a continuum, and I never want to be in a situation where people want, people want to see what I have to say and, and uh, ascribe uh, value to it merely because of something I've done in the past or who I am. I, I want stuff to be judged on its own merit. Like I don't want to get any bonus points for Celebrity.
0: What kind of toothbrush do you use, John?
1: Uh, Whatever kind my wife gives me. (laughs) Perfect answer. So
0: this is actually kind of following on from that a little bit. And and I know you are too humble a man and you will try and brush this off. But um, I would say that you, looking at other people that that work online and they write or podcast for a living, I, I think it would be safe to say that you do have a large enough following now um, that you could do this in some endeavor, and if you wanted to, could decide. Right, I, I John Syracuse, I am going to write and podcast and create online for a living. But you are a man that you work for a a company. You you have a traditional jobby job. Do you ha- are there any decisions that 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 you come to 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 decide that I am going to keep doing what I am doing and and not try and make it online? Is it like a financial security thing? What what is it for you?
1: Yeah, a lot of it is the security. Like, uh, I'm, uh, well, but even before the security, first, I I think I'm a better programmer than I am a writer or a podcaster. So it makes sense that I would do the thing that I'm best at, and I enjoy programming. It's not like I I toil and you know, and I'm I don't like it, and I wish I could do something else. I like programming, uh, so it makes perfect sense for me to do that. And as I think I talked about in maybe the last hypercritical show, I'm very risk averse. I want to have a salary with a regular paycheck, You know, I've, I've got a family, I've got a mortgage, I've got all those things, i have kids i got to send to college eventually. Like, uh, the uncertainty of being an entrepreneur or trying to do something out of the ordinary uh, would make me miserable and stress me out. Uh, I, I, need to, I need to be relaxed. Uh, so uh, this, this, I think, is the right balance for me. D- having a real job that gives me a steady paycheck, doing something I'm good at and enjoy, And also having these other outlets, which are fulfilling in other ways. And the second thing that I think about is that, you know, this definition I've heard of uh, introverts versus extroverts, uh, read somewhere, uh, is like, if you're an extrovert, if you go out and hang out somewhere with people, like go to a party or go out and socialize with people, uh, that energizes you. When you come back to it, you're like amped up and like that, that gives you energy. And if you're an introvert going out, even with a bunch of friends and having a great time and being in a social situation... When you're done with that, you feel drained and you need to recharge, right? I'm an introvert. So every instance of me putting myself out there, whether it's posting a blog post, doing a podcast, even just tweeting on Twitter, like every any instance of me taking something from inside of myself and putting it out there for the world, I have a finite amount that I can do of that before I need to just recharge. Uh, and being a programmer is a good job for an introvert for the most part, especially a programmer in a large company, is because most of the time it's me and the code and other coders and stuff like that. It's not me doing something, you know, creative and putting it out there for the world to see. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah.
1: And so that I, I think I'm as an introvert, I am not well suited. As an introvert and a risk-averse person, I'm not well suited to be a standalone, you know, podcaster, writer type thing as my career. I think I think I would not enjoy that. Um I could I would probably like it if I could make a living doing that type of stuff but only doing it on on my crazy introverted terms but that would mean very little output and I'm, I don't see why anyone would pay me as much as I get paid uh, to be a programmer to produce that small amount of content like doing two years of hypercritical was pretty draining for me like a, just a weekly show and that was just a one hour weekly you know so I don't know
0: At Analysize would like to know if your coworkers and maybe other people in your life know about the work that you do online, or do you decide to keep those things separate from each other?
1: I don't intentionally keep them separate, but realistically, they are separate. Like when, when you're in the bubble, whether it's the the Mac nerd bubble or the freelance technical writer bubble or the podcaster bubble, when you're in them, it seems like, oh, this is the whole world and this is us. And if you go to conferences that involve those people and we all see each other's websites and read each other's Twitter and blogs, it seems like this is the whole world, but it's not. It's a tiny, tiny little speck, right? And there are just millions of specs on the internet and much larger bubbles out there. and when I go out into the real world, no one knows about any of this stuff is. no one knows what a podcast is, no one knows what operating system Macs run or anything like it's just so outside even within other programmers, like it 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 just doesn't come up. uh Occasionally, someone at work will say, "Hey, I was you know reading on the internet, and I saw your name the other day uh and that's the the end of that. Thing. They don't, you know, pursue it and track me down and figure anything out. Just like, oh, like yeah, I see that name. You know, I work, I, know, I work with that guy. Or they'll ask me. I saw a name and it was yours. Is that you? And I'll say yeah. Uh, but people aren't as interested in that. If, like, if you're not into this stuff, it's like, you know, it's like finding out uh, that someone you work with is into uh, dog grooming and they go to conferences about dog grooming and they're really big in the dog grooming community. <laughs> you're like, oh, that's interesting, but you don't really care.
0: Now, Don, I just need to take a, uh, a very quick break. Um, to thank our sponsor for this episode. So you can feel free to step away from the microphone or whatever it is that you do in, in those moments, if that's okay with you. And I'd like to thank Squarespace for supporting us on this episode. Squarespace.com gives you everything you need to make an amazing website they provide you with a fully hosted, completely managed environment for creating and maintaining a beautiful website, blog, or portfolio. What I love about Squarespace is they give you all of the tools in one fantastic package. You don't have to worry about hosting, scaling, integration with social services. You don't have to worry about finding a designer, finding separate apps for your site. It's all built in. They have beautiful, responsive um, web-designed templates. They have a great drag-and-drop system called Layout Engine that allows you to put pages together in just seconds. You just drag-and-drop in types of content that you want on your page. Um, they have great iOS and Android apps so that you manage and post on the go, and you can view all of your statistics there too. Uh, Squarespace have now also implemented Squarespace Commerce, which is a new system that they have um, enabled, which allows you to add a fully integrated store to your website, and you can instantly start accepting payments, and they have partnered with Stripe to do this. You can start selling physical or digital goods directly in Squarespace. And in their system now, they have inventory management if you're selling physical goods, so you can manage all of that there. You've got customer order processing. You can print things like packing slips. You can send out customized emails. You can host your digital files with them and have coupon codes and download codes and everything. It's really quite impressive. And and what Squarespace have done now is they've added a whole other type of website that you can create with them. So if you want to set up a, a site for your business and you want to sell things for your website, you can do With Squarespace now. So, why don't you go and check all of this out? You can sign up for a free trial or find out more information by going to squarespace.com forward slash 70 decibels. Squarespace plans start at $10 a month for their standard plan. If you sign up for a year up front, you'll get 20% off any of their plans, and if you sign up for two years up front, you'll get 25% off. If you use the code seventy decibels free at seven zero d e c i b e l s free, you'll get an additional ten percent off your first order. So go check out Squarespace. Everything you need to make an amazing website. Thank you for that, John. So I would like to talk with you about your OS Ten reviews. Um, so you've been doing these for how many years? Have you been doing the reviews for now?
1: Yeah, in 1999, I think. Or oh, was it 99? No, 99, I wrote a book review. That was the first thing I did for ours. But I think uh, Developer Preview 2 of Mac OS X was out around then. Uh, so that was the first one I did. It did it, uh, Developer Preview 2, 3, and 4, then the public beta, and then 10.0 through 8.
0: So a, f- a fair amount of time, it would be safe to say now.
1: 13 years or so,
0: yeah, at least. So when, it, especially now with it being an annual release schedule, when it becomes time, again, for a new OS 10 review to be started, do you get excited about it, or do you have any sort of dread towards it?
1: I was totally dread at this point. Oh, 100% really? dread. It's It's been dread for the past several versions. Like, just just the, uh, I, you know, I, I like having done the review, and some parts of it I like doing it, but a lot of it is just it is just a lot of pressure at this point. <laughs> I feel this. I feel this tremendous pressure to do a good job because everyone, like the expe- expectations, are so high now for my reviews in particular. You know, uh, in the beginning there was no expectations because no one was reviewing this at all. And if you go back and read my early reviews, they were terrible, but no one cared because I was the only person on the entire web writing about macOS 10 Developer Preview 2, which no one had even heard of, and fewer people even looked at because Apple was going out of business, and who the heck cares, right? Hmm. Uh, but somewhere along the middle there, I you know, I got a reputation for having. Uh, you know, if you're going to read one review of a Mac OS 10 and you're a tech nerd, read this one. Uh, and now it's like, okay, uh, you know, how do I top myself or at least match what I did last time? How do I make sure that I do as good a job? Uh, you know, have, have as many, in, as many insights as I had there. Uh, talk about the future of the OS and, and have predictions that make some kind of sense and, you know, fact check myself against past predictions and stuff. Uh, so, yeah, it's a lot of dread. Because And also, it's it's just a tremendous amount of work. Like You would think it would get easier as time goes on. Like, oh, you've done a bunch of these reviews. You got it down to a science now. Uh, I hope this means that I'm doing a better job with each one, that it's, it just seems so hard for me to do it. Uh, but it could be that I'm just getting old and tired, and when I was a young man, I had more energy. I don't know.
0: So what is it that's driving you to do them now? Is it a sense of tradition?
1: Well, like... With the, with the review, I, I, it was nicer when it wasn't one, once a year uh, because then mm-hmm. I was like, all right, well, it's not, every, it's not like it's every single year, right? Uh, you know, but, but even yearly, it's like, okay, so you've got to do one, one big honking article a year. Uh, I continue to do them because I think not doing them would feel worse. Like, I would not want to see the release of, of a major new version of macOS ten, X and just look at other people's reviews and not have mine out there because I would have things to say about it. How can I not? I've been writing about this. So extensively for so long, uh, and it would not be as satisfying to me to write like a couple of blog posts about it. I want to be, I want to write that big giant review and put it up at Technica where I know tons of people will read it. If I wrote a couple little things about it on my blog, uh, nobody would read it, and and that's that's kind of a shame. I know I talked about like I don't want to uh, piggyback on celebrity or anything, but venue does matter on the web, and you know, writing the same thing and putting it someplace. That doesn't have as much traffic would reach a smaller audience, and like that's that's my one time a year or every eighteen months or two years where I get to reach the widest audience, uh, where I get to speak to the most people. You know, expand the audience beyond the tech nerds that would read my blog to you know slightly more casual people. Ars Technica is not far from a casual site, but uh, it certainly has a broader range of people that might be interested in it than my personal blog or my personal podcast. So, uh, I figured maybe when they switch to like. Mac OS eleven or they stop using the cat names or something, maybe there will come a point where I'll feel like I have a natural retiring point and I say, well, I I reviewed the heck out of that entire whole Mac OS 10 thing, but now they're on to something else. And I'll know when that stopping point comes, but that stopping point is not now, I don't think.
0: So have, do you uh do you ever feel like never again? Like when, when you publish one? Have you had that full? Like you may have have it coming up to it, but you said once it's done you feel happy.
1: Yeah, like, when I, once I get it out the door and people are reading it, that's that's the high point. That's not the low point. I don't go never again. I, I'm I'm ecstatic. I love it. Uh, and that makes me think, boy, like, how how could you ever think of not doing this? Why would you not want to have this happen and all these people read your stuff and talk about it? Uh, like, that's, you know, and, and feeling some confidence that I've spent a long time thinking about this and writing about it and I've gotten my message out there. The, the, the thing that could make me feel bad about it is if they go to these yearly releases – and their releases are smaller, like there are fewer significant, interesting things, and there's less for me to write about. Like when it was 18 months to like two and a half years, like these big gaps are early on in the development when you're going for 10.1, two, and 3, and 4, where they were making huge changes with each version. There was just so much to talk about. But if they go yearly, maybe like they don't have as much time to put big stuff in there, and then I'll end up writing a review that's, it seems like, oh, that review wasn't as good. It was, you know, it was, didn't have as much interesting stuff in it. It, it wasn't as, uh, as long or whatever. It could just be because the release itself is not that you know interesting or filled with stuff. And I think that would make me feel bad because I would feel like that's a letdown. But that's, um, that's out of my control. If they release 10.9 and it's like 10.8 with a few tweaks, what can you do? I'll write about the few tweaks, but it'll be disappointing to me.
0: It could be that it makes the workload easier though, so you're kind of like piecemealing it out a bit more. So yeah. you're doing one a year rather than, and it's smaller rather than a huge one.
1: It's yeah, but I think it would still be a letdown. Obviously, I'm, I'm of two minds on this. I want, I want it to be lots of work and big and giant, but I also, you know, dread the work.
0: <laughs> so is this going to be the second or third year that you've been doing it on an annual schedule?
1: Is this, uh, like, the second release? I'm so bad with dates. So, like... Um, I think so, yeah, because... 10.8, 10.7 were separated by year. 7 and 6, around a year, I think. you think I would know these things. This is the thing that kills me when people talk to me in person. <laughs> they think I have all these facts on hand. No, I look them all up for the article. It's,
0: yeah, I can imagine <laughs> I don't, I don't remember them. melt towards each other anyway.
1: Yeah, it, it definitely feels like this will be the, you know third or fourth one in a row where it's been a year, but I'm I'm so bad with measuring time, I don't know. Uh, the, it'll de- it's definitely going to be at least the third, because uh, I only recently started going to WWDC, uh, and I, I did that because Apple basically forced my hand by not saying when they're going to release the OS, and there was a danger that they would release the OS before I would have a chance to download and watch the WWDC videos. Uh, so if I can't attend, I could watch the videos, but if they don't tell me when they're going to release the OS, it could be they release it at WWDC or a week after or sometime before I have a chance to watch a week's worth of videos. Uh, So I I was like, okay, well now for the first time I really need to actually go to WWDC uh, because otherwise I'm risking not being able to write my review because a lot of the stuff I write about comes right from WWDC. I need to, I need to have that information. Uh, And so I did that for the first time uh, in 2011 and then I went again in 2012 and presumably I'm going to go again this year because now they're on a yearly schedule and, they were going to release the OS sometime in the second half of the year, around WWC or after. Like that seems to be the schedule they're on. I've got to go every year, uh, and I'm I'm not a big traveler, but I, I enjoyed going to WWDC. But I would never have done it if they didn't force me to do it. But through through ambiguous scheduling,
0: with the uh, Mountain Lion review, um, you took the reins of publishing your own version of the ebook. Like on the Amazon store and stuff. Do you think you're going to continue doing that?
1: Well, I mean, it was still it was it was still published through Ars Technica. Uh, I just made the book because the, right. like, it, uh, from my Lion review, I didn't even know they were going to make an ebook out of it. Uh, and they had just they were going to make an ebook out of this. They'd been making PDFs out of it for subscribers and stuff for a while, but I was never involved in that process. And then they made an ebook out of it, uh, and I wasn't happy with how the ebook came out, which is. Partially, you know, the fault of ebook technology and partially the the fault of all of our ignorance about doing ebooks because our technique had not been doing a lot of ebooks at that point. And honestly, like, I don't think anyone had any expectations that this ebook they would make would do any business. But it turns out that it did. I'm still baffled by it because, like, the thing's available for free on the web and I think the web version is better than the ebook version. But a lot of people were interested in it. So uh, the next time it came around, I said, all right, this is clearly something people are interested in. I want to have as much control over how this book looks as possible, so I'll just take it upon myself to sort it out and figure out how to get this book to look good in the four or five readers that I have access to and that I care about. So make sure it looks good on an iPad, on an iPhone, in Retina, not in Retina, on Kindles, on the Mac. You know, all all, all the places that I get tested. Uh, and uh, you know, I'm a web developer, so I know enough of the HTML stuff. And I was in the ebook business back before. Uh, the Kindle revolution so I know a little bit about ebooks and I figured how hard could it be and it's not that hard but it was certainly annoying <laughs> it was certainly like one more thing to deal with like i got the writing and i also have to you know do this ebook stuff luckily i had wrapped up the writing in enough time to give me like a week or two to just obsessively grind on the on the ebook generation uh, and i think we we all learned some hard lessons from uh, doing that ebook but i think it did come out better than last year's and hopefully next year's will come out even better still
0: and very you were extremely well qualified to to put the book together but what i guess what you couldn't account for was amazon's insane system
1: well i mean i wasn't i was had the correct background but i wasn't well qualified someone who was well qualified would be someone who publishes ebooks every day and had been doing it for years and that was not me that's actual because quality is like actual experience i I had the right background i was primed to learn about ebook publishing i didn't need to be taught any of the background material i just needed to have experience and experience is what i got uh, but you know I got one ebook 's worth of publishing experience. Uh, uh, people who publish ebooks every day or have it as part of a workflow as part of a real publishing company have vastly more experience and are much more qualified than i am but uh, but certainly there was there was no technical barrier to me doing it. It was merely bureaucratic and experiential barriers
0: so recently there 's been talk of the X mac again um, and this is this is coming from. A bunch of people have been talking about this, and um, I'll put some link in the show notes to a couple of articles that I've seen talking about this. Um, so this is people starting to wish for a a new iteration to the MacBook Pro, and trying to think about what that could look like, and them um, looking at you know what their um, what their their dream features would be. And I know that this is something that obviously you have spoken about a bunch in the past and you are also um a you know a man who is waiting you are waiting for the next iteration of the Mac Pro and i just wondered you know considering where we are now in in 2013 um which is meant to be the year we are hoping that we will see um a a new iteration of the of the of the Mac Pro as words kind of come from tim cook's mouth What do you, I mean, in 2013, for you, what do you want to see? Like, considering where we are now, I mean, do do you still want a tower? Do you want some new all in one? Has, Has anything changed for you as the type of computer you would like to see as your Mac Pro replacement?
1: Uh, for my personal needs, I don't think it's changed that much. I I would be perfectly happy with something that is like my current Mac Pro, but you can, like, ditch the optical drive and shrink the whole thing down a little bit. And I'd probably be okay with a non-server CPU in there, you know, just give me a really fast desktop CPU. But almost everything else, like, I would prefer to remain as is or get bigger. Like, uh, I want a the biggest, fastest video card that I can get because uh, I play games, uh, and you know, I don't, I don't want a mobile GPU. I want the big honkin' two-slot desktop GPU. I use a lot of internal hard drives, because they're cheap, and I have a lot of data. It's much cheaper than having external ones. They're more also more reliable. So I, can, I have four hard drives inside my Mac Pro now. I'd put more in there if I could. Give me four 3.5-inch hard drives and four 2.5, so I can put SSDs in those things. Like, sure, pile them on. Uh, other PCI slots I don't really care as much about, RAM slots. I do like to have a lot of RAM. I could probably get slightly fewer slots, but I wouldn't want a Mac Pro with like two or three RAM slots because, like, what's the point of a Mac Pro at that point? But that's what I I personally want. And as you kind of noted, like, Tim Cook didn't say that we were going to get a new Mac Pro. He said that, you know, people were disappointed that there was no new Mac Pro and they said, oh, we we might have something for those people next year. What that something is, it's presumably something that he thinks we'll like, but he may not be right, (laughs) you know, because we're all different, right? So, if they ship something with a with a, a mobile GPU in it, I will be sad. Right? If they ship something that only holds one or maybe one spinning disk and one SSD inside it and can't fit any more inside the chassis, I will be sad, right? Uh so that that's what I'm looking for. Uh you know, but but everyone has different needs. Everyone has and there's only there's only a few of us around who want to have anything to do with something like a Mac Pro, so I'm not optimistic.
0: So let's say that it comes around with six months into the year. Tim Cook gets on stage and he announces a device which is more akin to a Mac Mini than a Mac Pro. What's next for John Syracuse? If you don't get what you want, if if he does announce something that has all of the things that you've just said you don't want, I mean, where what would what do you think would be your most likely next next purchase? Would it be maybe something more like an iMac or a MacBook Pro?
1: I'd probably look for whatever thing that Apple offers that I like. I would probably shop based on GPU first. Right. uh, Because presumably, like, the RAM thing, I could just max out whatever machine they have. I think you could even put, like, 16 gigs in the mini now or something. Like, you know, most of their machines will hold enough RAM if you max them out, right? And the hard drives, I'll grumble, but I'll just buy a bunch of external cases and hook them all up with FireWire or Thunderbolt or whatever the heck you know or maybe i'll get a nas or i'll I'll do something to deal with the storage but the video card is intractable like there's no alternative for that you either have a big fast video card or you don't and you can't like you know add it in later so i would probably not get the mini because or anything that look like the size of a mini because that's really constrained in what kind of video uh, gpu you can put in there i would probably i assume end up with like whatever the top end imac is which still has like the what is it, the 680, uh, NVIDIA 680 MX or something. I think the M in there is standing for mobile. Like, it's not as slow as something you'd put it in a laptop, but it's not the big, giant uh, two-slot thing that you put in a desktop. But that's what I would shop on. I would look for the Apple product with the best GPU, basically, and then I would max that thing out and then just connect my stuff to it and, and be sad.
0: Yeah, the uh, Currently, the best uh, video card you can get um, in an iMac, is an NVIDIA GeForce GTX 680 MX with two gigabytes of onboard, of onboard memory.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I would suffer through that. <laughs> or, like, I mean, presumably it would be better than that, right? But yeah, you know, I'm still holding out hope that they will offer something that is not an iMac and not a Mac Mini that appeals to people who like the Mac Pro. like Because that's what that's the implied promise that Tim Cook is, oh, you're sad there's no Mac Pro. We'll have something for you. Well, I hope that's really true. I hope the something comes out and it's for us. It didn't, you know, that, that was the whole pitch, is that it's not going to be for all the people who currently buy iMacs, who currently buy laptops. It's going to be something for the people who are disappointed that there's no new Mac Pro. Now, there's very few of those people. But there's very, very few of them. But that's what Tim Cook said, that for those people, we'll have something for them that they will like. So... I'm willing to hold him to that when, because if they come out with something and people, oh, what are you getting upset about? You know, nobody wants that Mac Pro. It's like, no, but Tim Cook said this would be something that we like, the 10 of us who are interested in the Mac Pro. Uh, so I really hope it is.
0: Otherwise, we'll just have to try and corner him for you at WWDC and you can yeah. just
1: tell him all of your woes. Yeah, I'm sure he'll find that very
0: persuasive. <laughs> he won't have a choice, I don't think. She <laughs> won't let, let him leave. Do you think that there's much? I mean, so let's say that there is a new Mac Pro this year. Do you think there'll be many more years where there will be a new, like that, that this this type of computer will continue to be made by the Apple of today?
1: Yeah, I was just adding before the show. I was just adding some notes to my blog ideas file. What will probably be my next blog post uh, based on uh, you know these stories going around about the. Potential new thing for people who like Mac Pros and the X Mac and uh Marco just posted something about it, he's posted about it in the past. Uh I I, I think you know, at the risk of giving the first draft of my blog post here, well actually by the time the show comes out, maybe my blog post will already be up. Uh, I think there's room. There should be room. Apple should make room in its lineup for a high end machine. And it's for the same reason that car makers have halo cars, so-called halo cars, where uh, every car maker will have some car that very few people buy that probably cost them more money to manufacture and run the program for that car than they ever make up in profit margins, even though the margins can be high on these things, just because so few people buy them. Like, so a Nissan, the the GTR is their halo car. Nobody buys that car compared to the other cars that Nissan buys. Nissan is not staying in business because of the GTR. It's It's a loser. The Lexus, the LFA, like, they spent 10 years on that car. Uh, and you know it costs like four hundred grand, and nobody bought them. Relatively speaking, they made very few of them. That is not a money maker for them. Ten years of, of developing the car is ridiculous, right? But so why do these car makers have that? This thing, like why does Apple have the Mac Pro? Nobody buys it. Yeah, the margins are high, but nobody buys the thing. It's pointless. Everyone buys laptops and iMacs. What is the point in having it? You want to have it because you want to keep pushing the limits. You want to have something that's exciting. In these technical aspects, yes, technical aspects that nobody cares about. Most people don't care about car performance. Most people don't care about computer performance. This is increasingly so as regular cars get, you know, better and more competent. You know, it makes it makes high performance cars less interesting when your run of the mill Toyota Camry will do zero to sixty in like the same time that a Ferrari from fifty years ago would do. Uh, you know, don't fact check me on that, but you know, you get the idea. Yeah. Uh, it, I, I think there is something to be said for continuing to. Reach for the stars to push the limits. And there's something exciting about Apple. They used to do this all the time. Apple would come up with a G4 with you know the Altavec, and it would be like, look how amazingly powerful this is. And even though nobody needs that power, and even though everyone's buying iPads with incredibly wimply CPUs and GPUs and them, like it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that nobody buys a Corvette. It matters that the Corvette exists. And it and I think it helps push the whole line of products forward because like things trickle down, technologies trickle down, they can be tried for the first time on the high-end machines. Uh, so if I, was, if I was running Apple, I would, I would never have let the Mac Pro stagnate and I would have continued to develop that and I would try to always have the fastest available desktop computer and the technologies that I tried out in that line of computers, I would use in the rest of my line all the way down to the, the mobile stuff as it became appropriate. Like I would use it as a test bed for all sorts of new ideas. You know, whether they're good ideas or bad ideas, like when, when Larabie, before Larabee was canceled, the uh, Intel's uh, multi-core x86 GPU project, uh, Apple was experimenting with that supposedly inside. That that would be a perfect example. Say Larabee had actually shipped. I would want to see that in a Mac Pro. And when it crashed and burned, oh well. Then you don't bring it down to the rest of your line. But what if it was an amazing success? When it came time to bring the Larabee type thing down to the iMac line, Apple would have already had experience integrating with the OS, writing drivers for it, getting it stack ready for it or whatever. Uh, so I am I, I would say keep making Mac Pros. always have the best fastest most awesome desktop computer even though nobody buys it even though it loses money for the company you know even though it's like a distraction from what you do I said you have to do it for the same reason car makers have halo cars now just turn that into a blog post and you'll save me the effort but uh, yeah I'll try, to, I'll try to turn that into something coherent eventually
0: I like the thinking because it's like you see car makers and they have these cars and it's like well they lose money on everyone you know, But they make them because they learn from them.
1: And because they love cars. Like, that's yes. that's, the, that's the thing. Because the people who make them, like the LFA is a perfect example. The guy who, you know, was behind that, he loves cars. Like, that's, and why do you make it? You don't have to have a business reason. Make it because you love cars and because it's an awesome car and you're making your dream car. Like, this is this is a luxury afforded to you by your presumably more profitable, higher volume business. You have to do it to be a great car maker. You just have to. And I think you have to, push on the high end to be a great computer maker.
0: And you've got to imagine that there is a team in Apple that need a, a a Mac of this expandability and power. That there's got to be, there has to be at least one team, maybe Johnny Ive's team, you know, that that need it, so they should keep making it.
1: I don't know if anyone needs it, needs it, but like it's like who who needs uh you know a supercar? No one needs a supercar, but you like you you want to keep pushing the envelope. I think Apple does push the envelope on the other end of the spectrum: miniaturization, low power. They are; those are really the super, like the A six is the supercar of mobile uh, GPUs. They're in CPUs. I'm not trying to say that, you know, pushing the limits has to necessarily mean like big, hot, and powerful. But you know, miniaturization and low power and small size and the Retina screens—that's one frontier. But this, the, the old frontier is still there too: faster, bigger, better. You know, more power. Uh, that frontier exists and Apple has largely abandoned that frontier and I think that's a mistake.
0: So I have one more question that I want to ask you and this is a total departure from anything else that we discussed about today. And uh, this was one that I saw go past and I was like, yes, I I want to ask. I want to ask John about this. And this is from at Gonde, G-O-N-D-E and they're asking what your interpretation was of the ending of The Sopranos. So, I guess if you haven't seen The Sopranos, then you probably don't want to listen to to this part. But um, I watched all of The Sopranos recently, and I know that you are a big fan of the show. And I wonder if you you have an interpretation over the ending of The Sopranos.
1: Yeah, so if you haven't listened to The Sopranos, definitely fire off the spoiler horn. You should watch The Sopranos. You You should watch the whole series. That means you should stop listening now. This whole series is available probably for streaming, so... Don't listen to this part if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, first, let me say that I'm a fan of the ending. Lots of The ending is controversial. Some people hated it. Some people loved it. I loved it. Uh, so that's one thing. Now, interpretation as in what do you think happened or what was the ending trying to say, I think they made it pretty clear in the episode. I'm, I'm going by memory here, so maybe I'm, I'm, I I'm have mapped my interpretation to actual facts. But pretty sure in the last episode they had a segment where someone said, or maybe the last couple of episodes, where someone said something about what it's like to get shot in, in, in the back of the head. Like that you never hear the bullet, that just everything goes out, you know, because the bullet has gone through your head before you have time to register any of that stuff. It, 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 do you remember this? Am I just making this up?
0: I, I, it definitely rings true. I mean, because there was a lot, I mean, the whole sort of final episodes, which is like this sort of sub season, was all about just everybody getting
1: murdered. Yeah, and 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 being hunted and chased down. Right, yeah. so that so that thing was like the the pretty obvious setting up for the final scene, which was uh, like so during this time, Tony Tony's being hunted during that season at various points, and this tremendous amount of tension. Uh, probably second only to like, I think the first season had tons of tension there, but like huge amount of tension where you're worried about the safety of characters that you care about because it seems like no one is safe anymore, and you know the series is ending and all this other context or whatever. And the final scene leading up to it is. You're worried about the safety of everyone involved. And at any moment, you're expecting like Tony's children to get killed or Tony to get killed or his wife to get killed. And you see like uh, Meadow was like parallel parking and doing yeah. a bad job. And you think at any second, a guy's going to come out and put a gun to her head and kill her. Like the tension was just unbelievable. And, you know, the music is building and they're all, and they're just meeting in a restaurant. That's what's actually happening. Like the family is meeting in a restaurant. And everyone comes in and sits down at the restaurant and then it just goes black. Right. Uh, what some people is in the interpretation is oh, that Tony got killed, but y- you, you were not looking through Tony's eyes at that point. You were looking through your own eyes as the viewer. Right. Uh, and the obvious thing they were going for there is like having foreshadowed with like what happens when you get shot. It's like, Oh, the viewer has been whacked. Right. Uh, but I think the, the, the thing that I came away with from the ending, and the reason I liked it was that they're trying to, they're trying to say that like this, This life that they leave with all this tension that we've built up in the viewer about the fear of what's going to happen to these people, your time in that world is over because the series is over. So you're not going to get to continue to watch these people's lives. Uh, So you go to black. But – they're going to continue to live that life. That is their entire life. That is how they live it. That has always been how they live it. And just because you're not watching them anymore doesn't mean it ends. There is no resolution in terms of, well, now everyone lives happily ever after. Oh, or well, the criminals learned a lesson. Oh, Tony turned over a new leaf. Oh, the family is okay and safe now. Oh, they're all dead. No, it just goes on. You're just not there watching it anymore. Uh, so that that was my interpretation.
0: Yeah, I, I'm inclined to believe that too. My my young Me and my brother were talking about it and, and I was kind of just like, I just think that, nothing really happened and that's just the end i mean but a lot of people draw the like the parallel to the godfather because you've got the guy who's constantly looking at tony and then the last thing you see of this guy is he goes into the bathroom right so potentially to bring out a gun to kill tony with
1: well but that's the thing like they they set they set it up in that way there's nothing to imply that no. except for the tension that they put in the episode. Exactly. He's just could just be a guy, right? You know, like because at that point the audience is so paranoid because we know we're watching a, a mob show. We've mm-hmm. been seeing all these people, in, like we know what the we we're omniscient. We know everything that's going on in the thing, and the camera acts out our paranoia, right? By look at that guy. What is he doing? Oh, he's going there. What's that like? And. By having nothing actually come of that, like the guy doesn't come out with the gun and that's the end of the series or like, you know, all these people that we look at suspiciously or the camera lingering on her parallel parking that's just there to, 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 you know, highlight how worked up we're getting about this. But every part of their life is like that. Because of, you know, the life they've chosen to lead. And for all these innocent people who are caught up in it, that's what it's like for them. And we know it. We're like, you know, Meadow, look out. You could be shot at any second. Like, but she doesn't know it. She's just parallel parking, right? And Tony kind of knows it, but he also, this is kind of the life he leads. Uh, And so is he eyeballing the guy going to the bathroom? Maybe, maybe not. Or is maybe this is just another day and we're just paranoid and we're all crazy. And And then they just cut it off and said, you don't get to see this anymore. Your time with these people is over, but their life goes on and this is what their life is like. And for a second... You've got a feel for what it's like to be, you know, to be in that life.
0: Yeah, I mean, because I guess for Tony, really, there is never a moment where that is not the potential outcome of, of any experience. So anytime he ever goes anywhere, he's always in risk of getting killed.
1: Uh, yeah and and it, it waxes and wanes with the series and the events yeah. that are going on, but like this is the life they lead, and most of the time we 're just looking at it as entertainment and on the the exit of the show, they like brought the viewer into it and say, This is what this feels like right and it was the, the resolution wasn't that characters learn something and change and turn over New Leaf or that everyone is killed in some bloody massacre or, like, all the ways that people wanted the show to end. Like, they wanted to see the bad people get their comeuppance and whoever they decided the bad people are, whether that's Tony or the people who are trying to kill Tony or whatever, or they wanted to see some resolution or, like, all this therapy he was in, maybe it'll change him as the person. None of that happened. I think all those endings would have been worse. I, I like the ending the way it was.
0: I am inclined to agree. I, I, when the show ended, I was like, oh, it was. It was. Wasn't what I expected in in any way, um, and I've never seen a TV show end like that before, where there was no, like, just no resolution. Like it was just you. You now have to decide what's happened here because you, you're not. You're never going to find out what happened to these characters.
1: Or, that, or not maybe that. nothing happened, and that's you know. That's it's just immediate. that your time mm-hmm. watching these people is over. Their life goes on.
0: That things will just continue, and now he has to rebuild.
1: Yeah, but, you know, or, or who knows? You know, Maybe the guy did come out of the bathroom and shot him. Maybe he didn't, but you don't get to know that.
0: Or maybe the next day he woke up and decided he didn't want to do it anymore.
1: Right. I mean, it's like, you know, in movies, you think about that sometimes in movies where there'll be some, you know, movies have a nice arc and there's some sort of conflict, and then it comes to a resolution at the end. And sometimes I would think about, like, you know, the life, life doesn't end for those people, especially if they're young people. Life doesn't end for those people when we leave the theater. Like, that story is over, but, okay, they've got the rest of their lives ahead of them, and what will they do? with the rest of our lives. And, you know, that's, that's the true of any stories. You want it to be like, here's the story, here's the beginning, middle, and the end, and it's over. But if the people aren't all dead at the end, that's not the end of the story. Like, it continues, you know. And what does that look like?
0: Indeed. So, John, I think we have reached the end of the episode. And Are we just can just cut the black now? Yeah, we just stop. <laughs> and get the people, I guess, can, can, can expect what they think is ever going to happen to our lives after the end of this episode so I want to thank you very much for, for joining me today it's been a it's been a pleasure to talk with you
1: well thank you it's been fun
0: and uh, why don't you tell people where they can find you where, where is a good place to find
1: John uh, so you can follow me on Twitter at Syracusa my last name S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A uh, you can read my blog trying to stick to about once a week at hypercritical.co uh, and you can read my articles uh, my OS uh, Ten reviews uh, at arstechnica.com and a couple other articles here and there
0: Awesome. Um, you can find me on, on social networks, Twitter, and app.net. I am iMike, I M Y K E. Uh, thank you very much for listening to this week's episode. Uh, on the next episode, I'm going to be joined by Mr. John Mitchell, previously of Read Write Web, and now writing for himself at the Daily Portal. And we're going to talk about the decisions that he's made there and. Uh, maybe looking at this, how, how the current state of the tech press is and maybe why that has informed him to make the decision that he has. So thanks again to John for joining me today and uh, thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Command Space. Until next time, bye-bye.